Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Nigerian President Buhari has blocked Twitter. What does it mean for freedom of expression in the region? And Angolan President Jao Lorenzo has been in power since 2017. What has been his record so far? Plus, we talk about U.S. strategies towards sub-Saharan Africa. What makes a good strategy? And is President Biden following these key principles? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In early June, Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari banned Twitter. What does his decision say about Nigeria's democracy? Joining me to discuss Nigeria and other topics are Zainab Usman, Africa Program Director at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Nicole Willette, Chief of Staff at the Open Societies Foundations, and Chester Crocker, Professor of Strategic Studies at Georgetown University and former Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. Okay, when Buhari shut down Twitter, he said this was because it was a source of misinformation and a threat to Nigerian stability. Nigeria's government says it's suspending Twitter indefinitely after the company deleted a controversial tweet from the country's president. In reality, it was a retaliatory action because two days earlier, Twitter had deleted an offensive tweet by Buhari in which he said he would treat the Biafran separatists in a language they understood, quote unquote. And now this was widely thought of as a reference to the Nigerian civil war. President Buhari threw a tantrum and essentially kicked millions of Nigerians off the social media site. Zainab, this is my opinion, but I think this decision says a lot more about the health of the country's democracy and Buhari's intolerance of criticism than it does about a petty, very counterproductive fight with the social media giant. I was hoping you could just put this into context. You know, what does this mean to you? How should we understand what's happening in Nigeria right now? Thanks for having me here, Judd. The whole Twitter Nigeria standoff or face-off is actually very serious, but also in some ways very comical, right? So you have this uh, <laughs> this combination of uh, you know very interesting things going on. But what I would say is that there are various facets to the situation, and I'll mention three of them. So clearly, this is a restriction on civic spaces, virtual civic spaces in Nigeria, but there are three other things that I think I would like to put on the table. The first is that the ban on Twitter is a culmination of tensions that have been going on between the government and social media platforms, but Twitter in particular. So you see less so of that situation perhaps with Facebook and its other affiliates, I would say, WhatsApp and Instagram, which are still functioning in Nigeria. So with Twitter, most prominently, this was the platform on which the NSAR's protests against police brutality in October, I think, last year. It was the platform on which these protests were organized and coordinated. Twitter was a tool of choice for citizen journalists, activists, and civil society organizations who participated in these protests, but also just more broadly, right? People who often tend to be also critical of government activity or government incompetence or government overreach. So for the Nigerian government in particular, they had that grouse with Twitter that it gave a voice to protesters 
who you know had genuine grievances against the Nigerian police, but also to some people who engaged in violence and vandalism across Lagos. And then the final thing is that from the perspective of the government, or at least what they have explained as the reason why they shut down Twitter, was that this was used also to promote misinformation, sometimes active disinformation and incitement to violence with Twitter not necessarily taking action all the time. Although to be very clear, the government's rationale using this incidence of misinformation, of incitement to violence, I think that rationale was highly cynical, right? So that is one important facet. And then very quickly, two other things I'd like to mention on this front is clearly this suspension of Twitter is straining the relationship between the federal government in particular in Nigeria and a section of young Nigerians, right? You have a situation where this deterioration in state-society relations is coming most prominently after the NSAS protests, but also just generally with widespread insecurity across Nigeria. And people feel helpless that the government is not doing much, whereas, you know, it doesn't seem to hesitate at any opportunity it has to really clamp down on people who express negative views about its own performance. And the ban on Twitter actually has been quite effective in reducing the activity of Nigerians on Twitter. So, of course, people are using VPNs, but on a scale, really, you find that it's mostly influencers. It's mostly people who know how to use VPNs, who have the resources to use them, that are using them. Whereas corporate platforms, media houses, government entities, so many others have just completely disappeared off Twitter. They're no longer engaging. So the ban is somewhat effective, I would say. And then finally, I would say that, you know, it just reinforces perceptions that the government is more preoccupied with, in some respects, regime survival than with tackling the serious issues of violent crime and insecurity across Nigeria. So those are the three things that I thought I'd mention to really contextualize the situation. No, I think that's really helpful. And I'm, of course, wondering how do we get back to good here? I mean, the Nigerian state is losing a lot of money by this. This is exacerbating tensions. And Chet, you have, I think, the distinction of knowing who Buhari was as well as continuing to follow him today. And when you were Assistant Secretary of State in the 80s, is there anything surprising about what you're seeing today? And as the master diplomat, like, how do we get a climb down here from this situation? Well, I guess I would start by saying I think this is a it's sort of a microcosm of a much, much bigger issue, which is do we think that Twitter should play God in deciding who gets to speak? And of course, in our own country, we've recently seen Twitter decide to remove a former president from his Twitter account. So I think this underscores something very basic, which is these technologies, social media and related technologies, are actually something which helps to mobilize and empower average people and civil society, but it also empowers governments. And the balance of power between civil society and governments is what's at stake here. And that balance is going to be context dependent. It's not universal. But I'm not sure I would really want to see Twitter playing God globally as to who can speak and who can say outrageous things. And what does it mean to say an outrageous thing? Whose definition of outrage 
do we care about? And, and do we think that Twitter are smart enough to know where that line is in Nigeria, but also in Burkina Faso <laughs> or also in Ethiopia? So my, I think this kind of is a microcosm of a global problem. Who monitors whom and who is empowered by what? So obviously this does show a government that is on the defensive. I haven't stayed in touch with Buhari. I'm sure I dealt with him a few times, but he, he was kind of your standard issue Nigerian military leader. I'm sure he's got some strong points in his history and his bio, and he's probably got some weak points as well. But Nigerian governance strikes me as being exactly as Zainab described it, kind of a mess. I think you make some important points, Chet, about sort of the ability of Twitter to discern you know, who or what should be removed. I think there's an opening here because I think Buhari was not out of line exactly talking about some of the ways in which the separatists were talking and about insecurity or fomenting insecurity. And there's a face-saving mechanism here where in which Buhari brings back Twitter, but Twitter also commits to put more resources into this question around hate speech and provocation that's consistent with their terms of service. But Zainab, this is not like just an African issue, right? So we're seeing these crackdowns on social media all across the continent, mindful of what Chad said about having a universal approach. But Uganda, Senegal, Mauritius, Zambia, they've all passed cyber laws. They're all looking to crack down on these online platforms. You know, what is driving these in your mind? Yes, you're absolutely right to say that this is not just a Nigerian phenomenon. In fact, it's not just an African phenomenon. It's quite global. So the VPN company Surfshark released a report early in June in which it shows that around 66 countries out of 180 have blocked or heavily restricted access to social media in the past six years. And these countries cut across the spectrum of democracies and autocracies, right? It's not a function of regime type. What seems to be happening is that governments are increasingly taking action to regulate the reach of social media platforms for various reasons. And a colleague of mine here, the Carnegie Endowment, who is the director of the India program, described it very nicely. And I'm going to quote him. He said, we're seeing global norms encountering local resistance in many of these countries. So I thought, you know, that's an interesting frame and an interesting way to look at it. So for Twitter in particular, and of course, social media in general, the way I see it is that we are actually perhaps reaching a tipping point. And I think Chet also made similar points where, you know, we have now new virtual spaces to strengthen civic participation, courtesy of these social media platforms. The moment you have a situation in which the social media company is taking action on what a sovereign has tweeted or has uttered, it just starts getting very, very tricky. So in the case of Twitter in particular, they have deleted tweets of, of course, notably President Trump, they even deleted his account. But then they've also done similar things to Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil. I think they deleted a couple of tweets, Maduro of Venezuela, and then most recently, Buhari of uh, Nigeria. So, you know, you have to wonder then that the presidents and heads of states of other countries would be looking at this and say, okay, will I be next? And if that is the case, what should I do or what should I be doing 
So the way I see it is that we really have crossed a certain threshold and it's not really clear where things are going to head to next. And I suspect that what could happen to Twitter in particular, but social media companies in general, is that they could end up experiencing what I would call the Uber problem. So Uber, you know, the ride-hailing app, at some point it was expanding rapidly and then immediately it started encountering problems across different countries where certain countries just blocked them. So I suspect that we could be entering into that new terrain with Twitter, but we'll see what happens. And then the final thing I'm going to mention here is that, you know, as much as I, you know, I'm not missing any words in really criticizing the Nigerian government for the way it has handled this entire situation, I think Twitter itself has to take some responsibility for not being diligent in moderating the spread of fake news, disinformation, hate speech, and very, very importantly, across a number of African countries, influence operations that are coordinated using these platforms. So people, even myself, I have experienced bullying and trolling and all sorts of things. Your report accounts, they don't take any action at all. So they also have to take responsibility on that front. Well, what your colleague said, Zainab, is so important about sort of these global norms and local resistance. And I think there is a growing conversation, and I'm sure the Open Society Foundations is at, you know, the vanguard of thinking about these issues. So, Nicole, what is the right way to think about it? I understand that this idea around thinking about freedom of speech and technology will be at the Summit for Democracy, whenever that is, end of this year, early next year. How do you see this topic and how to tackle it in an equitable way. Thanks, Judd, and thanks for having me. And I'm flattered to be on with this group, Um, but please don't hold me to be the vanguard, especially with this group. But I will say, yeah, at Open Society and, you know, certainly in the U.S. government these days, I think we are hearing more and more about concerns related to this topic because it's everywhere, right? I mean, we have problems, whether you're turning off the platform, right, as a sort of autocratic move or if you're using it for propaganda. So either way, I think this is something that those who are concerned about human rights and democracy or at least equitable access to platforms like Twitter are going to have to wrestle with. I think, you know, we know that these are tools that are used by autocrats and that that's really scary and that we need to be serious about what to do. But I think the reality about playing God a bit, just to pick up on Ambassador Crocker's point, is that There is playing God and not playing God. We have to be respectful of media freedoms, but we also need to know that these are often warning signs of what's to come when autocrats or Democrats, right, could be any kind of leader, the world over begins to use what could be hate speech, what could be speech that would lead to violence on a social media platform. And we know the damage this can cause in the past, right? I mean, you know, we can talk about the Rwandan genocide and radio discussions and the way in which that propaganda or call to arms affected the rest of the country, right? So the fact that we have the private sector now very much in the game is an interesting new element, sort of a 21st century tech element to this conversation, but it's not one that's necessarily new when we think about human rights and big warning signs uh, in advance of potential for atrocities. And so to me, in that sense, when you're getting to the point where the possible alternative is mass violence, right, even if there's somewhat of risk like that, I think I do from a sort of corporate social responsibility 
lens think that that's going to be something that's important to consider. Now, I certainly take the point that we have to be really careful about the private sector making distinctions based on their interpretation of what happens in places that they may or may not understand. And I think we need to hold these companies accountable to having the expertise that they need to be operating there. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that these platforms are intended to be free speech and that we sort of collectively in the human rights field have acknowledged that freedom of expression, freedom of the media, freedom of voice are incredibly important components of human rights. But when they cross a line into incitement of violence, that we need to take a different tack. And, you know, we see that in terms of what Twitter did when it came to President Buhari or when it came to President Trump. And we also see the flip side, which is what happens when you don't take those measures as a private sector company and you think about Facebook and you think about what happened in the United States in terms of violence related to the election. So there's a lot of different ways to see this. I do think it's something that needs to be wrestled with at the uh, democracy summit that the Biden administration is planning on holding. I think that's a really tricky space, right? It has been both celebrated and condemned as symmetry that might be performative or might not have enough teeth to it. And my sense is that the attempt to bring in something like a social media component suggests that they really are trying to make it relevant to what's happening now. Because again, we're not in a space where we're going to be able to get away from these companies and away from shared platforms, I don't think, anytime soon. So, you know, I think that kind of engagement is important and bringing, I would argue, private companies in to have conversations, to do sort of some real talk about what it means to hit these guidelines for when you begin to lose access to social media platforms, to be clear about what those expectations are, what qualifies as hate speech and what doesn't is something that could potentially be a really important part of this. I also think there's ways, you know, when you think about U.S. democracy and governance assistance, or you think about that from any donor, to think about what the elements are around tech and social media that need to come into play. I mean, we really need to modernize our approach to thinking about human rights and democracy, generally speaking. And I think not having our hands around this one is a really clear indication of that. I think that's right. I mean, we're not going to solve this problem on this podcast, but I think given the issues that all three of you raised, uh, we do need more conversations. We do need to have some norms. And what we don't need to have is certain individuals dictating what those terms are, and particularly sort of from the North, global North to the global South. So I don't think the Biden folks will f- solve it at the summit either. But I mean, we just need to make sure this conversation has all the relevant stakeholders. And it's going to be a process to work through sort of a new way in which we're going to do this so that we can preserve the freedom of information or freedom of press, freedom of speech, but at the same time, not create circumstances in which people are shutting off the internet based on their own political prerogatives. So why don't we shift to the second topic, which is Angola. And it's been a year since we've talked about this important country. I think that episode that we had, we talked about Lorenzo's efforts to recover billions of dollars stolen by his predecessor, Eduardo Dos Santos, and the family. In 2018, Angola got a new administration after the exit of Mr. Jose Eduardo Dos Santos and has since launched an aggressive anti-corruption fight. But I wanted to do maybe just a little bit of a step back Chet, you're a close follower of Angola. President Lorenzo has been in power since 2017. Do you have an assessment of how he's been doing? I mean, how do you take 
the hype about the anti-corruption campaign and then look at some of the economic decisions he's made, political reforms, if any, his foreign policy leadership. And, you know, where do you think we are with Angola and this leadership team? Well, I think it's a, a bit of a mixed bag. Of course, on the corruption front, he targeted particular people, his predecessors and the family. But there are certainly a number of other influential players who apparently uh, are doing okay still and have not been so much targeted of this anti-corruption campaign. So it's a selective anti-corruption campaign, and that's understandable enough. But when you think about it, anti-corruption campaigns are things that people like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have specialized in. So it's possible for strong men or strong leaders, uh, authoritarian leaders, to use the anti-corruption shtick to pursue their own power agenda. And there may be some of that going on, but at least we can say that Isabel dos Santos is no longer riding high as the richest woman in Africa, which she bragged about publicly in a number of magazine interviews not so very long ago. So that's on the corruption piece. I think the performance, obviously, Gerard uh, Lorenzo came into office at a time when oil prices were way down. And so he's been very constrained in terms of what he can do. But more recently, it's, it's not a bad story. I was looking at the recent uh, reports from the fifth review of the EFF with the IMF, and it's a pretty good story. And, and it looks like Angola's coming out of the woods a little bit on its economic performance. So I think that he should get some credit for that. His economic team should get some credit for that. Another point I would stress is that I, I think Lorenzo is very much aware of the fact that he has a major platform as a leader in Central Africa. He has a major platform as a leader in SADC. He's a member of both. Angola is a player in both Central Africa and Southern Africa. And I think because he has the resource base that he has, and because he has the military that he has, he's in a position to play a pretty strong hand selectively when he chooses to do so. And I would just underscore that. We recently saw SADC uh, take a modest step forward in terms of helping figure out what to do in Cabo Delgado in, in Mozambique. And whether Angola plays a role in that, an active role, I'm not sure, but they should because Angola has the capacity to do the kinds of things which the Mozambican military does not have the capacity to do. And that's um, to deploy capable shooters and to have the air support you need to do that and to go after these guys. Whether they do it effectively and whether Nusi lets them do it effectively, we don't know yet. I think this point about Lorenzo's foreign policy is so important and often I think gets underplayed relative to the anti-corruption and the economic story. But Lorenzo played an important role in, I think, convincing Kabila to step down. Lorenzo deployed Angolans to Lesotho to deal with some of the political turmoil there. And I think time will tell on where it plays out in Mozambique. But this is really important because the Angolans were very reluctant, despite their size of their military and their political heft, to play that role. So I think it's another positive mark for Lorenzo. Zainab, I know Angola is a focused country for you. Do you agree? What did Chet miss? What else should we put on the table? Yeah, so I, I mostly agree with what the ambassador mentioned and at the risk of uh, repeating all the things he said, I think I'm just going to focus on what I see the government trying to do in terms of trying to really reposition the economy. You have to remember that this is a country that is hugely dependent on oil extraction and oil exports. 
It is, I think, Africa's second largest um, oil producer. And for that reason, it has been heavily impacted by the collapse of commodity prices in the year 2015. So since 2016, it's been experiencing negative growth rates. And right now, the country is really trying to move from a state-led oil economy to a private sector-driven, slightly more diversified economy. So they've decided to privatize a number of state assets to generate revenue and financing over the next uh, six years. And it seems like they are on track to do a number of important and interesting things on that front with support of the IMF. So, yeah, I'm keeping an open mind about it and, you know, we'll continue looking at what they're trying to achieve on that front. Okay, we've got a mixed bag. We've got a couple of things that are on the positive side of Ledger, a couple of things on the wait to see side of it. Nicole, does that mean, what kind of engagement does that mean in your mind? What would you recommend to President Biden and the team about thinking about Angola? They didn't get that much love at the Trump administration. They did send Deputy Secretary of State Sullivan to Luanda. But, you know, overall, given the moment that we've been in in Angola since Lorenzo coming to power in 2017, we've missed some opportunities. So looking forward, what would be your recommendation, prescription? To me, Angola is a country on the continent that is ripe for engagement. I mean, this to me is the moment and it's certainly the best chance I think we've had in a really long time to seek a conversation that the government Luanda has been pretty reluctant to have with us for some time. I agree. During the previous Democratic administration, there was an attempt under Secretary Clinton at the State Department to advance a strategic partnership with Angola, in addition to one that we had with South Africa, which is a whole other complex relationship. And I would say that Angola, there was just very little traction. They weren't particularly interested in engaging with us on any number of things, despite some overtures. And then, of course, like you said, in the Trump administration, we actually did have, interestingly, this sort of real overture. And I would love for it not to be that administration that was able to have a conversation with Angolan officials that this administration isn't able to have. And I think there's some real opportunity for that. So, yes, I agree that there is a selectivity of reforms here that are complicated. And the Biden administration needs to decide whether those reforms are enough to create this opening. You know, I do think that for quite a long time, the Angolan government did seek some validation from the United States, but that we weren't willing to give them the kind of validation that they sought. And so there was sort of a continual effort to write off that relationship. But now, I mean, as others have said here, they really have some needs. There's a real need for that economic diversification. And I think a government that is much more conscious of that in Angola, like the ambassador said, there's a stronger military there than there is in a lot of other places on the continent, certainly in SADC. If we're able to start a conversation with the Angolans in a really serious way, there's a lot to talk about. And I think on both sides, for once, right, there's some actual statecraft to this, right? There are things that we would really like to see Angola do that matter in the world and matter to U.S. interests. But there's also a number of things they'd like to see from us in terms of assistance. And I think we're in a position to do that right now. So I would really encourage that engagement. But one way or another, I think a decision needs to be made quite purposefully in terms of how we're going to engage. Chad, do you want to add anything? Well, just that uh, Jean Lorenzo was recently uh, in New York and had a very, from what I hear, a good meeting with uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield and uh, made his presence known uh, speaking very eloquently in the chamber in the UN. 
about uh, some of the challenges, including in car. We didn't mention car, but Angola is a key player on car as well. I think the biggest question, and Nicole's touched on it, is what is our priority with the Angolans? Is it that they get their house in order at home? Is it that they play a strong role on regional diplomacy and regional conflict management, if you like? We have a choice there. I'm not sure that we've made that choice. Maybe we'd like to have our cake and eat it too. (laughs) Is it impossible, Chet, to go for both? Does it require choosing one or the other? Well, I think the Angolans, if I know them as well as I think maybe I do, they'll want to know what we really want and what are we prepared to do to get it. (laughs) Well, that's a perfect teaser for this last section about thinking about strategic priorities and objectives. And we're going to talk about What is the U.S. strategy towards Sub-Saharan Africa? Nicole and I are starting a new podcast. It's called 49, and it's all about the U.S. approach towards the region. The first episodes are going to be available for download and streaming on Thursday, July 15th. We're really excited to share this with you. And I thought maybe, Nicole, just a teaser. You know, why is this worth everyone's time? You know, what should they expect? Well, I think if you care about what's happening on the continent, but you would like it in a bite-sized format, for folks who are like, hmm, I, I think I have to do something on Togo, or I'd really like to understand the historical relationship in Cote d'Ivoire, this is a place where you can go and get fast information, whether you're a journalist or a scholar or someone who just is really interested. And I would come for the sort of insights, particularly those that Judd has dug up from what feels like centuries past in terms of the U.S. and various relationships on the continent. But I would stay for the fun stuff at the end. So we're, we're pretty serious about the issues, but then we also have some conversations about music and food and big ideas, risky ideas that make it both fun and engaging. I think you sold it. I'm positive we're going to get a huge response. I love that. And you know, what's what's funny is that we do a lot of prep in that show on the history of U.S. bilateral relations. And the person who probably shows up more than anybody is you, Chet. You are constantly referenced in almost all of these. And that's because of your tenure as Assistant Secretary under Reagan and what you pulled off. For those who don't know of your many accomplishments, you devised this audacious, consequential strategy to get the Cubans out of Angola in return for the South Africans getting out of Namibia, which led to Namibian independence. This was called linkage. And so just to start us off on the right page, Chet, what makes a good strategy? How do you go from conceptualization to implementation? What were the ingredients that allowed you to drive for eight years towards this, you know, I think many people thought was impossible goal? Well, thank you for setting it up uh, so generously. I think there's a number of basics here about Africa strategy, or for that matter, strategy anywhere. You cannot take on everything. There are lots and lots of issues in Africa and in U.S.-African relations. And I think we have to be somewhat selective and to focus like a laser, as the saying goes, on trying to figure out what problem or problems to prioritize. And there's lots of candidates out there, lots of candidates. So we really have to think about that. Secondly, I think it's very important that we not focus on one country or single countries. We should focus on either groupings of countries that make sense as a kind of sub-regional area of focus, or else functional areas of focus. So you could focus on the Sahel, we could focus on the Horn, we could focus on the Great Lakes, 
but don't focus on the DRC or don't, don't focus on Mali, for example. You need to focus more broadly. On the functional side, I can think of lots of good candidates. What to do about fisheries protection? What to do about education for girls? What to do about anti-corruption? What to do about climate? And, and I'm sure you'll think of lots of others, but you can't do everything. Third point, you need to have lots of leverage if you're going to get anywhere on these problems. And the way to get it is to borrow it. And you borrow it by creating like-minded coalitions of the willing, if you like, or concerts, a term I like to use, to, in effect, create a win-win with lots of other players or as many other relevant players as you can assemble. So that's a third point. Fourth point is don't give your strategy a name. (laughs) Is that the death of all strategies is giving it a name? People will take your strategy's name and they'll turn it upside down and, and make a mincemeat out of it. So you don't want to do that. Then there also are some organizational points very quickly, Judd. I think it's very important to, to work inside the interagency and within the State Department to find ways to create buy-in, to co-opt people from the different agencies and to mainstream your strategy in the African Bureau and not sort of outsource it to some special envoy who's then disconnected from reality apart from his or her special envoy status. And then finally, I would just say it's helpful sometimes to have people in our key embassies around the world who have an Africa responsibility. And that's a decision that needs to be made with the help of other bureaus within the State Department. You mean like an Africa watcher in Beijing? Is that what you mean? And in Moscow and in London and in France and Paris and so forth. And that way you actually are building a multi-continental team that focuses very directly on the problems du jour. I'm not saying you can only have a single option. I think there may be room for (laughs) more than one strategy, Judd, but don't have too many. Well, I guess, Zainab, I want you to, I know it's early days, this is totally unfair, but are you seeing what Chet is talking about, sort of a clear strategy focused on either a couple of countries or a functional issue, sort of setting up the organization in a way, the interagency to drive these policies? I mean... It's been six months, seven months since the administration's come into power. Like, where are you in terms of your own assessment of the strategic sophistication? Yes. So as you rightly mentioned, this is quite tough (laughs) because uh, obviously this is a new administration and confronting various uh, domestic and global challenges. At the same time, my observation so far is that, of course, there are significant differences that we can see between the Biden administration and the predecessor, the Trump administration. So certainly there's a clear rhetorical reversal, if we can call it that, from the Trump era. There's a clear acknowledgement that, you know, Africa is an important part of the world. There have been also appointments of key personnel or nominations, at least of key personnel in the State Department for the position of ambassador, ambassadors of different countries, etc. But I would say that in certain respects, there are also aspects of the engagement that have been quite limited. So practical engagement, you know, the face-to-face diplomacy and interaction, that seems to be quite limited. Uh, Secretary Antony Blinken has still not visited the African continent. He's been to Europe a number of times. He's been to a number of Asian countries. And you have to compare this with also what China is doing, because just in January, the foreign minister of China, Wang Yi, 
did a five nation tour across Africa, right? So we're in a situation where you can actually compare and contrast with what other countries are doing. And it's really not enough to just kind of continue with what has been done in the past. So having said that, a number of things maybe can be done differently. And I'll list three that I see from my perspective. So the first is really, I think it would make a lot of sense. It would also help advance U.S. interests to really listen and take into account African priorities. And there are a number of ways to do this. There's the Afrobarometer, which does these regular surveys. And I was looking at the last survey they did across 34 African countries in which they asked ordinary people, ordinary citizens, what their most important problems are. And the two top things they mentioned are unemployment and health. So clearly any initiative, any intervention, any aspect of the engagement that prioritizes jobs creation is going to be important for African countries, for African citizens. So investments in infrastructure, business support, enhanced trade relations in ways that are beneficial to both parties, something to think about. And more immediately, at least if you listen to what credible African leaders and policymakers are saying, access to vaccines, that is so crucial because that will help power Africa's economic recovery. Right now, the continent is experiencing its third wave and it's so difficult to acquire vaccines. You know, supplies are just not even available, even if countries wanted to buy them. Number two, very quickly, is for the U.S. government to work through regional institutions and not to undermine regional priorities. So you look at the continent today, you find that there are a number of hotspots, conflict hotspots, where you have political crises brewing, about to erupt in conflict or even conflict that has already erupted. And I think I agree with the ambassador in the sense that I don't know if the U.S. can try to contain conflict everywhere or intervene everywhere. So maybe working with regional institutions, whether it's ECOWAS or SEDEC or the African Union, would help. And I know some of these institutions have not really lived up to their responsibilities. They've been also lagging in a sense. And I think the U.S. can help kind of put pressure, nudge them to act and work through them. But also very importantly, on the economic side, the continent has come up with an ambitious agenda, the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. I think it would be very important for the U.S. to work alongside or to at least acknowledge the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, especially when it's time to think about what comes after AGOA, the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. So to think of a regional approach as opposed to taking an approach that may not really help advance the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. And then finally, final point is really to maybe to have a slightly different mindset when dealing with the African continent in which the continent is seen as a partner, just as the way the US treats Europe as a partner and even treats China, even though China is a bit more like it's a competitor, but China is treated as an actor on its own right, as opposed to thinking about the continent just as a recipient of aid or as a humanitarian case. And with that mindset, then, you know, that would help with the selectivity that the ambassador mentioned on areas that align with U.S. interests in which the U.S. can actively engage on, as opposed to trying to do everything. 
But it seems to me there's an issue that's really fundamental here. If we try to re-emphasize a return to the democracy promotion agenda, we're playing right into the Chinese game, which is also the game of Museveni and a lot of other people. So we have to decide to what extent do we wave the flag as the world's leading democracy promoters and in the process enable more and more African leaders, not their people, but African leaders, to write us off as being somehow uh, over in one side and only interested in promoting our values. You know, it's really dangerous. I think we could go down a slippery slope here if we're not careful. So we have to figure out what are we supporting and promote our values agenda and how do we do it in a way that becomes African, which is what you were all saying a moment ago. This has to be an African agenda. And what does that really mean when it comes to democracy and democratic values and norms? It's a challenge. I don't have the answer, but it is a challenge we can't avoid. Luckily, Nicole and I have a podcast where we're going to go through each of these countries and talk about these issues. So I can save uh, some of my remarks for the other podcasts. But I thought we would just close, Nicole, with maybe some of the things that we've talked about in the first dozen or so episodes. Are there through lines that you kind of picked up or themes that maybe echo what Chet and Zainab have said and any of the takeaways that I think we heard consistently from the different folks who have been on the podcast, people like former Assistant Secretary Johnny Carson to you know several journalists and academics from the region. We have seen a lot of themes come through despite I think a variety of guests who see the continent in a, in a lot of different ways and are based all over the world. And you know, I think one of the things we're hearing pretty consistently is have a strategy, right? Because this pod is really about the USG and the way that it connects back to various countries. And I think people are hungry to see an articulated strategy for what this administration is going to do. And the themes continue to be similar. It's calls for a lot more engagement, for more personalized attention, for more real economic discussion. I mean, Zainab just mentioned a few ways in which that can become real having smarter security policies, being really careful about how we approach human rights issues, wrestling with what is a Defense Department drawdown on the continent admit a lot of serious extremist threats, thinking about how we engage better with civil society. We do have a number of civil society activists and journalists who have come on the show, and they are very clear that those voices should be some of our guiding lights. And I think when you think about Angola, for example, like we talked about earlier, where we need to think about where the boundary is for how to engage and when to engage. Civil society has a lot of really important opinions on that. That is true also, of course, on the disinformation conversation we just had, right? Where in addition to the tech companies weighing in, we really need civil society to be informing them and governments about how to approach these issues. I think we're also really hearing a call across that podcast for big moves, right? I mean, what can this administration do that's different? Judd, you have railed on this for a long time, and I think there are many who support you. I mean, should we be considering UN reform in a real way, something that we've never wanted to do despite calls from the continent? Should we be thinking about quadrupling democracy and governance assistance so we're really back in that game? Should we be, and I think Zainab, again, really talked about this, how do we engage with the region in a smart way? And then because we really do know that personnel is a big part of policy, to Ambassador Crocker's point, how do we go ahead and reward foreign service, the civil service in ways that signal that working on Africa is just as important as working on every, anywhere else in the world. That has not historically been the approach. I think we've had some real exceptions to that because we've had such extraordinary diplomats step into the space. 
but that isn't enough. We're really lucky to have Linda Thomas-Greenfield and others who really know the continent, Samantha Power at USAID, come into really prominent positions within this administration, and we should run with that. And finally, picking battles, right? Making sure that you force the interagency to get it together when it comes to something like Ethiopia, right? Whatever the major conflict of your time is, nuance in the interagency is important to that internal discussion. It is not helpful when you go back out in the world and are trying to send messages diplomatically. The agencies really have to be able to come together on what the position is going to be and stick to it. We have lots of indications throughout many years in U.S. policy of the State Department and the NSC and DOD having different messaging. And we've really, I think, got to get clear on that if we're going to make a dent in some of the most concerning crises in the world. Well, we're going to try to work through it in 49 episodes, and we will also address the bureaucratic seams that we all live in still that I know I've written about that they should be dismantled, and I think Nicole shares that sentiment. I hope that you will uh, check out our podcast, but more importantly, I'm just appreciative of this conversation and the richness and having three people who I just dearly respect and, and learn from every day join us. So Thank you so much, and we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.